first reading can be found on page 604 of the Bibles and is Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading can be found on page 1188 in the Pew Bibles and is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28, page 188. Final instructions. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your word, you would indeed bring it to life in our hearts and that you would change the way we live in the light of your holy word impacting on us. And we ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Do please be seated. Well, perhaps the first thing I must say is that I bring you greetings from about 83 different churches in Western Ethiopia. Uh, Everywhere I went, the first question was, how is your family? Even though no one had ever met any of my family, but family is incredibly important in Africa. And please send our greetings to your church. And I told them that we regularly pray for the church uh, in Gambella, uh, the church in Ethiopia. And... uh, they were really delighted to to know that there was this church in London that thinks of them. Uh, So they asked me to send very warm greetings to everyone here. 
Uh, the highlight, I think, of my trip was visiting Rosemary Burke, who we've just prayed for, one of our, our mission partners. Uh, she's recently moved to Gambella, which is down in the Rift Valley. So it's everything you'd expect the jungle to be. Hot, steamy, snake-infested. I had a scorpion I encountered in the bathroom. Uh, rabid dogs on the compound. Malaria rampant. Um, you know, chaotic roads, potholes, broken down cars. And it was, um, and yet at the same time, wonderful, wonderful people, full of joy and a wonderful growing church. It was an absolute thrill to be there. And I've, I think one of the bring home things I've, I've learnt is uh, how important it is to, to keep up these links with these churches and with our mission partners. Rosemary was just thrilled to have someone from St. Michael's out there. So if anyone's ever thinking about, what shall I do with my holiday? Um, if you fancy a trip to the jungle, uh, please go and visit Rosemary. She'd love to see you. Uh, she loves hearing from people here. She mentioned one or two people who correspond with her regularly. But just a quick email or um, something in the post, uh, recent magazine or something like that. Uh, all ways in which we can keep in contact, really, uh, really important. But this church in, in, uh, in Western Ethiopia um, is growing fast, uh, particularly the Anglican church with uh, uh, often the influx of uh, South Sudanese refugees crossing the border into Ethiopia. But there's also considerable conversion growth. Uh, in the last two years, 50, 50 churches have either been built uh, or rebuilt, and uh, of over 80 congregations, uh, until a couple of years ago, only 20 actually had a building to meet in. But it is wonderful to see a church growing and thriving in such a very challenging situation. And as I looked at these churches, three particular needs stood out as far as I could see. One was good leadership, uh, that is both uh, godly, mature Christians and people who can cope with very often quite complex social situations around them. The second is the relationships between the Christians. There's often considerable intertribal rivalries and conflict. Many Christians are there because they've had to flee their homes. And it's wonderful to see the reconciling power of the gospel at work. And the third particular need I, I saw was uh, the need for access to the Bible and to good Bible teaching. Two particular needs. One is the, the need for, to have a Bible translated into people's own languages. Uh, and also the training of pastors and people who can teach the Bible well. And then while I was out there, I started reading this passage that we've just had read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which addresses exactly these three areas, our relationship with our leaders, our relationship with one another as Christians, and our relationship with the Bible as the Word of God. And it struck me that these aren't just issues for the church in Gambella. This is, these are issues for uh, our church, for any church, now, sometimes you hear it said of Christians that they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly use. Have you heard that said? They kind of go around with their heads in the clouds. But I think the lesson of 1 Thessalonians is that unless we are heavenly-minded, we will be no earthly use. We need to fix our eyes on our final destination. 
And if we have our eyes fixed on our final destination, that will keep us going now. So the final prayer of Paul in chapter 5, verse 23, I think sums up the whole letter. He says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus dominates this letter. Last Sunday, I think, you looked at the the major section, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, on Jesus' return. But I don't know if you've noticed how the return of Jesus features actually at the end of every chapter. So if you just flick back with me to chapter 1, verse 9, the end of chapter 1, they tell how you turn from to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath the return of Jesus affects our salvation then chapter 2 verse 19 for what is our hope our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes is it not you So the return of Jesus affects our evangelism. Then chapter 3, verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So the return of Jesus is a motivation for stable Christian living. And then chapter 4, verse 17, which you looked at last week, the last couple of verses of Chapter 4, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The return of Jesus gives strength in our sorrow and hope for the future. And then, as we've just seen, chapter 5, verse 23, the return of Jesus is motivation for holiness So knowing that Jesus is coming helps us to face the hardships now. And knowing that Jesus is coming also helps to give us a kind of Christian perspective on life as we hope for Jesus' return and heaven. The seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper, was a famous 19th century social reformer. He once said this, I do not think I have lived one hour of the last 40 years that was not influenced by our Lord's return. You see, knowing that Jesus was returning motivated his concern for the poor and him him in establishing overseas missions. And so with these Thessalonian Christians, Paul is keen to say that Jesus is coming, so live life well. And Paul, I believe, says the same to us today from these verses. Jesus is coming, so let's live life well. So let's look at these various relationships. First, our relationship with our leaders. This is verses 12 and 13. Now, of course, the unbelieving world regards the vicar as a joke. Think of the way vicars are portrayed in uh, television sitcoms 
whether it's Dad's Army or the Vicar of Dibley or Rev. You can understand that they are not my favourite viewing. These men and women are weak and ineffectual and worthless. Now, we have some lovely neighbours, and they were really quite curious when a vicar moved in next door to them, particularly as we had more in common than they were expecting. We both had Labradors, and we seemed quite normal. Well, well, Lucy seems quite normal anyway. But a few months after we moved in, one of them said to me, So, Tim, what do you actually do all day? And so I described some of the things that I'd been up to that day and during the previous week. And the the wife digs the husband in the ribs and says, See, it's not just Sundays. (laughs) (laughs) But for many, that's what they think. You know, six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. For many people, the pastor is wasting his time. You know, it's a job with low pay and no prospects. Who'd want to be a vicar? And of course, it's completely different if you see it through Christian eyes. You see your pastor doing a task that has eternal worth. Could there be anything more important than helping people to get ready for heaven? I'm not saying only the vicar can do that. But it's certainly not uh, a, a meaningless task by any stretch of the imagination. That's why, verse 12, leaders are to work hard, says Paul. It's the same word that's used for manual labor. It's the same word used back in chapter 1, verse 3, where he talked about the labor prompted by love. It's the same word he uses in chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, we worked night and day so as not to be a burden to you. If you love people you will work hard for them. And part of that hard work, verse 12, involves admonishing people. In other words, confronting what is wrong, sometimes being direct with people, leading them into God's truth. Sometimes it's a painful thing, and if you're a sensitive sort of person, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. So we need to pray for our Christian leaders that they will do their task well, and faithfully, and conscientiously, and consistently. Because Christian leadership is draining. Have you noticed that most vicars are bald, or (laughs) grey-haired? It takes a physical toll. (laughs) It's emotionally draining, and it's spiritually demanding. So Paul gives this triplet of exhortations concerning our attitudes to our leaders. Verse 12, where to respect them because they have God-given authority. Verse 13, we are to hold them in the highest regard in love, not a grudging, reluctant acceptance of our leaders, but a glad recognition of their God-given responsibility. Leaders are normal human beings, you know. If you prick them, they bleed. And the way to build a harmonious church is not to moan about our leaders, but to love them. So respect them, hold them in highest regard in love, and third, verse 13, live in peace with each other. There is no place in the church for envy or bickering or complaining. 
You know, peace is a most powerful evangelistic persuader. When the opposite is true, when there is a lack of peace, when there's disharmony, backbiting, infighting, it's very off-putting. People look at the church and they say, who'd want to join that lot? So that's why Paul regularly encourages young churches to honor their leaders. The second area of relationships is our relationships with one another in verses 14 to 18. I don't know if you've noticed over the last few Sundays how often Paul has used the word brothers as he writes to the Thessalonians. And of course, he means brothers and sisters. It's a sort of generic term. He means brothers and sisters. Nineteen times he uses that term in five chapters and five times in this little passage we're looking at today. And here in verse 14 and following, Paul is talking not just to the leaders, he's talking to the whole church. You see in verse 26, he says, greet all the brothers and sisters. Verse 27, have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. So the next little triplet in verse 14 is addressed to the whole church. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. The idle need warning. There was a tendency in the Thessalonian church for the Christians to stop working. They were so convinced that Jesus was about to return any moment, maybe today, that what's the point of going to work and doing some boring job when I could actually be sharing the good news with my neighbors and friends? And Paul's quite strong in both Thessalonian letters that they should get on with their work. He elaborates on this if you turn over chapter 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. There's a pretty clear injunction there to work hard. The idle need warning. And the last thing, I think what he's really saying, is the last thing we want to, the unbelieving world to think is that the Christians are a load of lazy sponges. Christians should be in the vanguard of service to each other and to the wider community both for the sake of the service itself and the good they do there, and also for the impact that their lives have on an unbelieving world. But as well as warning the idle, we're to encourage the timid and help the weak. I think there can sometimes be a danger that we're so keen to urge people on and to encourage them to come with us and to, to spur them on to love and good deeds that we lose the gentleness and kindness that's so evident in the Lord Jesus. We mustn't write off the weak or avoid them and only spend time with the strong and the talented. We're meant to encourage everybody. There's a story told of a missionary who married late. I say this is a story told. I have no grounds for believing it's true, but anyway, makes the point. This chap married late in life, uh, and uh, 
this is in the 19th century, took his bride with him to some pretty unpromising terrain, may have even been Gambella, I don't know. Uh, anyway, the new bride was not happy, and on a boat trip, she said, I am cold and miserable, and nobody loves me. To which her husband replied, don't be so stupid, woman. Put another cardigan on, and anyway, God loves you. <laughs> well, there are other ways of encouraging the timid and helping the weak. <laughs> then he gives another triplet in verses 14 and 15. First, be patient with everyone. Second, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. And third, always try to be kind to each other, that is the Christian community, and to everyone else the outside world. We have here several of the fruits of the Spirit. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, love. These are the qualities of Jesus. It's his Holy Spirit who gives them to the Christian. Of course they're so attractive and they're so obvious. But it's so hard too, isn't it? You know, it makes such good sense to not to pay back wrong for wrong and try to be kind to people. I mean, it's the kind of thing a sort of primary school head teacher says at assembly every week. Be nice to each other. <laughs> Hold the door open for the teacher and all that nonsense. Revenge is much easier. Revenge is our natural response, isn't it? So to hear do not pay back wrong for wrong, well, we know it's true, but it's hard, isn't it? Someone once said, revenge is the tastiest morsel cooked in hell. Notice that Paul does not just say, nobody pay back wrong for wrong, but verse 15, always try to be kind to everyone. <laughs> I could be kind and nice to the people who are kind and nice to me, no problem. Always try to be kind to everyone. Okay, so let's be real with ourselves for a moment. I want you to think for a moment of someone who has hurt you in some way, treated you badly, done you an injustice, and frankly, you're fed up with them and you don't really feel like being nice to them. We'll just have 30 seconds of silence as we think of how we could put verse 15 into practice. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to everyone. Don't you find that 30 seconds is an uncomfortably long period of time sometimes? <laughs> Christianity is a religion of love, and the church should exemplify that loving, transformational power of the gospel. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, or perhaps someone has asked you, what is God's will for my life? Well, if that's a question on your mind, or if someone ever asks you that question in the future... Have a look at verses 16, 17, and 18 for our next triplet 
you want to know what God's will for your life is? It's a favorite motto for some people. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for my life? Well, here's the answer. It doesn't tell us about careers or who we should marry or whether we should marry or where we should live or anything like that. But perhaps let's just take a moment to think, how am I getting on in fulfilling God's will for my life? Am I joyful always? Did you notice that joy is commanded? Not because we must always go around with this sort of sickly, sweet Christian grin on our faces. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that a Christian's joy comes from God. In Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. That's why we read Psalm 100. He says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. And then he lists a whole load of reasons. Not quite 10,000, but several reasons why we should praise God. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. I was reading the Bible with someone in hospital the other day. And they wanted to read Romans chapter 8. And it's just a wonderful litany of, you know, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, nakedness, peril, sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. And here's someone who's gravely ill in hospital, wanting to be reminded that their joy was in the Lord. Be joyful always. Second, am I praying continually? Verse 17. Doesn't mean, of course, we should always be in church, always going around on our knees and so on. But is prayer my automatic reflex to situations in life? That quick arrow prayer. Like Peter, Lord, save me. Lord, help her. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me your grace. Praying continually. Third, am I giving thanks in all circumstances? Now, notice he says in all circumstances and not for all circumstances. We cannot thank God for terrorism. It's an abomination and horrific. Uh, It's a horrific offense against the good God. But in those circumstances, we can thank God for his grace and mercy, for his justice, that he is sovereignly powerful. We can thank God in those circumstances for his gift of eternal life, for his faithfulness. And actually, I was just thinking the other day how much I praise God for that, the example of that church in South Carolina who, in the face of a poor, an appalling atrocity, individuals from that church stood and forgave the accused in the courtroom to his face. I forgive you, they said. Please confess, repent. And I praise God that Christians are not retaliating but responding like that. So are we living in God's will, joyful always, praying always, thankful always? Now, all of this is uh, very challenging stuff. We move on to our third area of relationships, our relationship with God's word. This is verses 19 to 22. Now, prophecy is 
teaching the inspired word of God. It comes in all sorts of forms. Uh, These verses give us a clear call to listen carefully to whatever messages purport to come from God. Now, of course, 1 Thessalonians was written uh, in the early 50s AD, well before the Gospels were written, and quite possibly it's the first New Testament book of all. So these Thessalonian Christians had no Christian literature. They had no New Testament, no Gospels. We, of course, are in a completely different situation. We have in our hands what Peter calls in his epistle the living and abiding word of God. And for, this Christi- this, for, and for the Christian, this book, verse 20, should never be held in contempt. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. Even the bits we find uncomfortable. And for the Christian, testing everything means that, yes, we should test what people claim to be from God, but we don't need to test what's in the Bible. That is the word of God. That's a subject for another sermon, but if you've got questions about that, do please chat with me or someone else after the service. But when we hear a talk or a sermon, or when we read a Christian book, or whenever someone says, I I think I've got a word from God for you, then yes, that's when, verse 21, we are to test it according to Scripture. And, verse 20, we're not to be contemptuous about it either. We're to be open that God might be speaking to us through a sermon or through a book or through a friend. And as we do the sifting and the testing, verse 21, we're to hold on to the good, and verse 22, avoid every kind of evil. Now, this is an absolute whistle-stop tour through uh, a a passage that has 20 different commands, and they're to all the brothers and sisters. And Paul is quite strong, isn't he? He says, we ask you, we urge you, we charge you. It's getting stronger as he goes on. And, of course, so much of this, as we read it, is clear common sense, isn't it? For any Christian... Of course we know that we should respect our leaders. Of course we know we should be patient with everyone. Of course we know we should try to be kind to each other, to pray, to avoid evil. I mean, these are sort of absolute Christian no-brainers. No one's going to argue against that. But it's still not easy, is it? It's still challenging. And Paul concludes in verse 23 by praying for them and for us. Look at verse 23. Look at his prayer. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all need God's help to live life well, to live godly lives. And these verses tell us that as we look to that great goal ahead, the coming of the Lord Jesus, we can only be of any earthly use if we are heavenly minded. And we're looking to our heavenly father to strengthen us. How can I do this? I can't do it on my own. But look at verse 24. The one who calls you, Jesus, is faithful. And he will do it. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Lord, we would indeed make Paul's prayer our prayer. We ask that you, the God of peace, would indeed sanctify us, make us holy through and through. 
We pray that our whole spirit, soul and body may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are the one who not only calls us, but that because you're the faithful God, you will do it. Please change us, we pray, and make us into the kind of people you made us to be. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.